There is not a single other sound that I could imagine opening up this podcast to, and that is including my very own theme song. Ahoy mateys, my name is Captain Eric, and welcome aboard to episode 130 of I'm Ready, a SpongePod Squarecast. It's a pleasure to welcome you aboard, especially on today's excursion, as we get away from our television set and step into our local theater for a feature film, the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, the very first SpongeBob film and the seventh Nicktoons film overall. Since its release, it became one of my favorite movies of all time. It's easily in my top ten, and honestly, I know that's not shocking, because I, I have a SpongeBob podcast, but to be honest, I don't think it's because it's SpongeBob related. There are other SpongeBob films that are nowhere near my top ten. Um, there's something about this movie, it, its essence is special. I don't know how else to say that. There's there's something about it in its story, its writing, the message that it's trying to tell that at least resonated with me more on a personal level than even some of the greatest animated movies of all time, some of which I was lucky enough to see in theaters. Aladdin, The Lion King, Toy Story. And and I'm sorry, I'm not I'm not bragging about that. Boo, you it was just the time I, I grew up in. I was lucky enough to see some of these movies. And I can objectively tell you, if you were to ask me, hey, what are some of the greatest animated movies of all time? I would I would list off some of these. But for my own personal preference, if you lined up all these animated films, maybe it's because as a kid I watched those Disney ones at nauseum. But I would choose the SpongeBob SquarePants movie to watch over those. I rattled that question in my head for years, and it really wasn't up until I was doing research for this episode and um, re-watching the movie that I, I think I finally found the answer to that question, and that I was able to find a way to even explain it to you. So I'm not going to answer that right here, I'm going to answer that by the end of the episode. And honestly, I think it, it says more about the SpongeBob SquarePants movie as a whole, as a piece of art, than anything personally with me. But as far as uh, something personally with me, it is difficult for me to talk about the SpongeBob SquarePants movie and its release and to give you personal feelings at the time without going over uh, some traumatic experiences that I went through in middle school at the time. Uh, it's very light in subject matter, but it personally affected me as a whole, and it's literally impossible for me to tell you, like, yeah, I, I went and saw it in the theater the night of release, and I was stoked. It That would be a lie, and I'm not going to lie to you guys, and I don't mind opening up some of my life. This was half my life ago at this point, so I have no problem just telling you what had happened and uh, and how my experience was going into the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Uh, it'll, it'll make sense. It'll make sense as to why I, I had to bring this up. But I'll, I'll talk more about that more after the chunk of the movie. Now, as far as the movie is concerned, usually on the on the podcast, I go over episodes beat for beat. But when it comes to this movie, the best thing for you to do is just watch it. You don't need to hear me go over every single moment that happens in this movie. And honestly, I don't want to do that at this point in time. Maybe down the road, there's a, a more in-depth breakdown, scene by scene, of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. I'd love to be the guy to do that. Uh, but for right now, we're going to keep things a little bit more short and sweet. But if you're in for a decent ride, buckle up in your paddy wagon, and maybe you'll learn a thing or two. Or maybe you won't. I don't know. 
I don't know how much you know. I don't want to assume anything. I hate assuming things. That's when you uh, you make mistakes. First released on November 19th, 2004, SpongeBob made big waves at the box office, reestablishing Nickelodeon's dominance on pop culture. Nickelodeon Movies was founded on February 25th, 1995. Hold on. I think that's right. I, I threw that out there. I just want to double check Nickelodeon Movies. What do I get if I'm right? A $1 million question. This is like bar trivia. February 25th, baby, 1995. Got that right. So this is the final answer heard all around the world. He's won a million dollars. And after two moderate successes with Harriet the Spy and Good Burger. Welcome to Good Burger, home of the Good Burger. Can I take your order? Made a massive statement with the Rugrats movie on November 20th, 1998. Made roughly on a $30 million budget, which is around what all of these Nicktoon movies originally were being made for. Rugrats movie was $24 million, but there was a couple of 30 and then 25. It was it was around that like 25 to 30 million dollar budget. But Rugrats went on to make 141 million dollars at the box office, which was a massive deal at the time because it was the first non-Disney animated movie to cross $100 million domestically at the box office, which would ensure that Nickelodeon would bring more of their characters onto the big screen for future successes. And after back-to-back successes in the year 2000 with Rugrats in Paris the movie and Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius in 2001, Paramount Pictures approached Steven Hillenburg with the idea of making a SpongeBob SquarePants movie. But here's the thing. Hillenburg had kind of thought about what Spongebob and Patrick would do in a cinematic experience, and he was never really sold on any of the ideas that he could come up with, and for more than a year, he pushed off the idea of a Spongebob Squarepants feature film. Now, he was always open to the idea if someone showed up with a story that was worth making. Here's a quote from Steven Hillenburg himself on the very first inception of the Spongebob Squarepants movie. I never wanted to do a movie because I didn't think that what we wanted to say needed to be in a movie. I like the short form for animation. Then this story idea came up that lent itself to a longer format. You can't do a road trip adventure in a short form. Steven Hillenburg. From what I can find, Hillenburg was very aware of some of the greatest animation achievements in film up to that point. Had watched Iron Giant and Toy Story with his children and always thought about what you could possibly do with those characters in a cinematic way, and it seems like someone brought something to his attention that was just too good to pass up, because once that was pitched, everything just moved on forward ahead. Hillenburg, alongside five other writers and animators from the show, Paul Tibbet, Derek Dryman, Aaron Springer, Ken Osborne, and Tim Hill, over a three-month period in an old bank in California. I guess the bank wasn't being used anymore, and there's a room in said bank, and, and for three months, the six of these guys got together, and they crafted the story of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Ken Osborne said of the experience that it was hugely fun, although it did get kind of gamey in there, which I have to imagine after three months, yeah, the, the gaminess would have risen, but... Can you imagine being a fly in that room just to hear all of the all of the possible pitches as to ideas that could have happened in the SpongeBob movie, the the moments that just were pitched and thrown out there and maybe elaborated on for for an hour and then forgotten about? 
Maybe there were possible scenes with Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy that were brought up or or other characters like Larry the Lobster to do a little bit more. Who knows? Who knows? But by the end of that three months, they had the script pretty much done of what the SpongeBob SquarePants movie was from the beginning, the middle, and the end of it. And boy, is it an experience. It certainly takes a lot of inspiration from some other movies in terms of parodies and whatnot, but its overall story is very much a homage to uh, the the famous Odyssey by Homer. No, no, unfortunately I'm talking about the Greek author, the famous Greek author of the Odyssey and the Iliad, uh, Homer, not not Homer Simpson. If you are familiar with the story of the Odyssey, or if you have watched the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which is almost a modern-day retelling of the Odyssey, if you are familiar with that story, you can see some of the similarities pop up here and there throughout the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. I'll point those out as uh, as we go on. But I will never forget seeing the very first logo for the movie during the 2004 Kids' Choice Awards. They, they just had a commercial where it was a, a beachfront, and the buoy that had the logo of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie just washes up onto shore, and then they tell you the date that it's coming out in November. Uh, that was something that I will never forget, and I immediately ran to the whiteboard in my, my kitchen and had a countdown timer on the amount of days until the release of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, which I uh, I kept up regularly for like two weeks, and then maybe it was a, a weekly or bi-weekly event that I would change the amount of days, but... It was a big deal, and then later that year, seeing a trailer for the SpongeBob SquarePants movie when I was seeing Shrek 2 with my mom, and then here's this teaser trailer that uses some some footage from some of the greatest submarine movies of all time, Das Boot, U-571, and The Hunt for Red October, and uh, mixing it with SpongeBob SquarePants. It's a, an incredibly funny teaser trailer. If you've never seen it, it's worth uh, it's worth finding, but that's just an unforgettable moment. But before we dive into the the story of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, let's go over some of the new characters and locations that we're meeting for the very first time in Bikini Bottom. First off, we we have a, a whole new ruler of the sea in King Neptune. Apparently, he at least lives within reach of Bikini Bottom or right on the outskirts. He has an entire undersea castle. And this is a legitimate thing, as as even when King Neptune is on his way to the Krusty Krab, Mr. Krabs is fully aware of King Neptune and respects his rule. Like, this is a legitimate king right here of the undersea ocean. I don't know how far that reach goes, but at least it covers Bikini Bottom. We have King Neptune, who is voiced by Jeffrey Tambor, who, if you were not familiar by the name, if you were a fan of Arrested Development, he played George Sr. Bluth on that show, and he brings a a level of ferociousness to King Neptune, but also the, the thing about Jeffrey Tambor and his voice, he's able to bring a bit of a softness to that, which we're able to see at least in one or two scenes of this movie. We're able to get somewhat of a softer, kinder King Neptune that we can see in those those moments when he's able to to kind of rationalize and be calm. Everything is, is a-okay with him, but for the most part, King Neptune is ruling his kingdom with an iron fist and is just not having having it from anybody. Even if it's your job to do something and he just deems what you're doing not cool, he'll throw you away for decades. I, it's what happens in the movie with the crown polisher. Literally has a guy 
to polish his crown and then throws him in prison for 20 years for touching his crown. Now, of course, who steps in and saves the crown polisher is King Neptune's daughter, Mindy, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. Now, in today's day and age, Scarlett Johansson at this point is a household name. I don't have to explain uh, any of the roles she's been in. I'm sure most fans out there of this podcast may also watch at least some of the Marvel movies, so you're familiar with her work as Black Widow. But at the time, Scarlett Johansson, I at least wasn't familiar with her or any of her work. And to be perfectly honest, she does sound a bit muted and moot with her performances, Mindy, for the most part in this movie. But there are genuine moments of just sweetness with the character that I think Scarlett brings that really helps connect Mindy with SpongeBob, with Patrick, and helps fill in the gaps of the rest of this cast in a nice way. I'm only saying maybe very early on, the, the back and forth rapport between her and her father doesn't come off the best but by the end of the movie, Mindy is a, a well-welcomed character into the cast. But here's the thing. We may we may have great corporate synergy in 2022. Uh, and what that means is when you own, when you're a company and you own a bunch of other companies under you and they start working within one another, that's that's corporate synergy. We may have a lot of that today. And examples of that would be when Disney Jr., makes a Marvel show, that's corporate synergy. Uh, within Paramount, you know, it's it's when a Nickelodeon property could make something for Paramount Plus, that's corporate synergy. There wasn't a lot of that going on in the early 2000s. There was more of a firewall in between Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon movies, and Paramount Pictures. And because of that, a lot of these elements that were created for the movie would not be seen in the SpongeBob SquarePants show for up to 14 years. New locations for this movie, such as Goofy Goober's Ice Cream Party Boat, took 14 years to kind of get through all of this kind of legal mumbo-jumbo and all these contracts for them to just go, okay, you can use this in your in your TV show now. Isn't that crazy? But that explains really why King Neptune looks the way he does, why, you know, a lot of new locations had to be created, and then might explain why we went so long before a lot of these extra bits from the SpongeBob SquarePants movie would be referenced in the show proper, which I'm glad we finally got to because uh, I absolutely love Goofy Goober. I love the the ice cream party boat. It's a great location. I, I like even the Thug Tug and a few of the other locations that we meet for the first time here. Uh, but to go over the crew for the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, our storyboard directors and writers are Steven Hillenberg, Derek Dryman, Tim Hill, Ken Osborne, Aaron Springer, and Paul Tibbet. Our storyboard artists are Sherm Cohen, Caleb Muner, Tuck Tucker, Mike Roth, and Eric Weiss. Our animation director is Alan Smart. Our live action director is Mark Osborne. And our main director is Steven Hillenberg. The film's plot is as follows. It is March 7th. The grand opening of the Krusty Krab 2. Mr. Krabs is opening up a second restaurant right next to the original and is announcing the restaurant's new manager, a position that SpongeBob assumes he is a shoe-in to get. On the other side of the street, Plankton, feeling immense jealousy and failure, is now down to his final plan, Plan Z, 
a lemon-scented and diabolical plan that involves stealing the crown of King Neptune and pinning the theft on Mr. Krabs. King Neptune, an unruly tyrant, goes right after Mr. Krabs, and although he missed out on his managerial promotion, SpongeBob steps up to help King Neptune reclaim his crown from its supposed current home, a far-off forbidden place known as Shell City. SpongeBob and Patrick have six days to retrieve Neptune's crown, and with the help of his daughter Mindy, traverse the outskirts of Bikini Bottom in a sandwich vehicle known as the Paddy Wagon. And it's in this legendary vehicle that SpongeBob and Patrick make their way through the yokels, thugs, frogfish, monsters, and even a killer psychopath paid by Plankton to take them out, all on their way to Shell City. With the last obstacle on their course being a giant cyclops that guards the outskirts of the city. The cyclops, though, happens to be an actual diver, a, a real person who ends up capturing SpongeBob and Patrick and bringing them to the real horrors of Shell City, which we find out is in fact a gift shop and knickknack store which specializes in sundries, dried out fish that are then repurposed into goofy knickknacks for those tourists to show up to the beach. It is here that SpongeBob and Patrick realize the severity of Shell City and also see that Neptune's crown is well intact and being sold at the store. And while all of that is going on, what has Plankton been up to? Well, Plankton, in the meantime, has stolen the Krabby Patty secret formula <laughs> right in front of a frozen Mr. Krabs, stuck in place awaiting his apparent doom at the hands of King Neptune. Plankton starts serving Krabby Patties at the Chum Bucket while handing out free helmets to every single customer, which ends up being almost everybody in town except Squidward, who calls out Plankton on his plan which may have not been the smartest thing as this initiates Plankton on his next phase, using those buckets to control the mind of every single citizen in Bikini Bottom and using them to turn Bikini Bottom into Planktopolis. Or as my phone corrected it as, Planktopolis. <whistles> SpongeBob and Patrick narrowly escape death. Yeah, I'm, I'm serious about that. And escape with Neptune's crown in hand. SpongeBob and Patrick were given a cheat in the magical bag of winds to get back to Bikini Bottom, but through a mistake are left with no way back home and with minutes until Mr. Krabs is set to be executed by King Neptune. With minutes to spare, David Hasselhoff comes to the rescue, helping get our heroes back home while also avoiding an attack by Dennis, the aforementioned psychopath from before. Narrowly making it in time, SpongeBob and Patrick save Mr. Krabs' life and reunite King Neptune with his crown. And although Plankton may have had one final trick up his sleeve, SpongeBob uses the power of being himself and some serious rock and roll to save the day to send Plankton packing to the Institution for the Criminally Tiny. SpongeBob is fully embraced by everyone in town and then is, of course, given the role of manager for the new Krusty Krab 2, a position he didn't initially get and lost to Squidward, but after fully proving himself and his capabilities in this impossible situation, completely earned the right to be promoted from fry cook to manager. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. As far as those Odyssey connections, if you've been waiting and you're like, well, yeah, I'm a fan of Odyssey, I'm a fan of, oh brother, where art thou? What are you talking about these connections? The frogfish in this movie is essentially the sirens, luring the prey off of their trek 
And instead of, you know, the usual beautiful women off in the distance singing their song for SpongeBob and Patrick, it's it's simply free ice cream. And in such an obvious dangerous situation, it's it's completely hilarious. The other one is of course the Cyclops. The Cyclops is a is a big threat in the Odyssey. And if you are a fan of the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And you're like, Cyclops, what are you talking about? Um, I would go take another look at John Goodman's character in that movie who wears an eye patch. Big Dan T. He's the Cyclops of the story. So there's there's some connections here, and there's probably some other ones I'm not I'm not really thinking about right now. But those are some two pretty on-the-nose connections between the Odyssey story and the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. And just so you know, those elements from the Odyssey have been adapted in many other stories. It's a common it's a common tale to go to to pick these elements to pull from because it's one of the greatest stories ever written. If you've never read it, it is certainly worth your time uh, to track that down. I want to talk about um, uh, from beginning to end, I have some notes here of the movie. I want to go over those. The first one being the absolutely wonderful Nickelodeon movies indent that we have at the at the beginning here. It's easily my favorite Nickelodeon movies moment, and I want to shout out all of those involved in its creation. Barry Davis, Josh Eichenbaum, Oliver Luckett, Ramey Perlman, and Karen Rachtman. All of you, thank you so much for just giving me a piece of music that can elicit instant nostalgia and honestly, depending on the mood I'm in, sometimes tears. Tears of joy, knowing that I'm in for a good time, 87 minutes of a SpongeBob movie. Or just tears of nostalgia, r- reminding you of a, of a better time in your life. This was a, a moment that I remember vividly, vividly in the theater once that indent started. Because it just comes out like a, like a shotgun blast. It's just there. And it's loud, and it's vibrant, and it's bright. And then it goes soft to quiet. It's... Such a beautiful piece of music, and I think it's it's telling that they never reused that again. That was a one-and-done indent, which I know up to that point, Nickelodeon movies have have had their own indents for each and every release, uh, but that one they could have reused, and I don't think anyone would have batted an eyelash at, but they never did, and and it's an incredible start to the movie. The original intro for this movie with the, with the pirates... The movie starts out with pirates getting tickets to the SpongeBob movie. They go on to sing the theme song and then head off to a to a theater to go see the movie. And originally, through some rough storyboards, Patchy the Pirate was going to be the captain of this crew. I don't know how far after that he was taken away, but there is an actual quote from Vincent Waller over Patchy's removal in the movie. And in quotes because the movie folks don't really understand his appeal. Intentionally low production values scare them. Vincent Waller. The studio probably wants to go all out and make this look as good as possible, and if you're showing up to go, hey, let's make this look really bad on purpose, that's probably not enticing Paramount Pictures, so Patchy was was quietly removed, uh, and I don't think it really got that far into development. Like I said, the only... Uh, evidence we even have at his inclusion is rough storyboard art for the opening of the movie, and, and that's pretty much it. By the time they went to filming it, I'm sure they had Captain Bar all ready and set and good to go. Now, I want to bring up the opening shot of SpongeBob in this movie, not his dream. The movie opens up in a dream portion uh, of SpongeBob thinking of himself as the manager, as an Ethan Hunt-type character, 
taken on an impossible mission of helping a customer who ordered a Krabby Patty with cheese, and there was no cheese on that Krabby Patty. But once he awakens from that dream, we get this opening shot of SpongeBob in his bedroom, and right away, even if you've been watching SpongeBob from the beginning, his room is structured in a bit more of a childlike way. It, even just the first shot, we get the the Mermaid Man comic book on the floor, which which isn't the worst thing to to just be scattered in his room. But then he has a, a play ball and this jellyfish mobile hanging from the ceiling. And from that shot, going over to the calendar shot of seeing his toy chest and all of the glow-in-the-dark space, you know, stickies on the wall, it's it's a bit more of an on-the-nose, childlike appearance of his space that I don't think we have seen since the first episode. I think when SpongeBob first enters his gym in Help Wanted, and we see that he uses stuffed animals for his weights and all the walls are adorned with, like, cutesy stuff... That's that's like the first episode establishing SpongeBob as being able to have that in his house, but also get out and go to work and have a job and and be a functioning member of society, but still comes home to a lot of goofy things. We don't see that a ton throughout the series. They've they've toned that back up until the ending of Bossy Boots from season two, when SpongeBob uh, bought back all of the cuddly crab merchandise and adorned the inside of the pineapple as as cutesy and cuddly as possible, we haven't seen that very much in the series. But here we are in this in this one shot. And here's the thing: if this confuses you at all, you're not really sure how a character is supposed to function like this. The easiest other fictional character I can point you to as someone who functions as a member of society. In, in this kind of manner, it's Pee-wee Herman. If you go and watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure, especially, that must have been uh, a movie that they watched for some inspiration for this movie uh, because Tim Burton was also a, a student of Jules Engel, who this movie is dedicated to, and, and we'll talk about Jules later on. Uh, but yeah, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, if you go back and watch that movie, it opens up at Pee-wee's house, which is wall-to-wall a museum of goofy kid pop culture merchandise and inventions, and it's just a playscape for this man-child who is so sweet, so genuine, and one of a kind. And of course, Pee Wee Herman was a massive inspiration in the creation of SpongeBob SquarePants, having someone who can just toe that line between having stories where he is focused more on an adult end, like going to work, and then you can have stories where it's more on a, on a kid end where he's going to boating school and he's treated more like a kid. They were really ingenious in how this was created and how they can tow this line. And honestly, that has helped SpongeBob maintain his popularity more than anything else, is being able to kind of flip-flop between these stories and you can have a wide variety of, of ways that you can present SpongeBob because... He is such an innocent and optimistic childlike adult that you can you can put him in any kind of scenario and it fits the character perfectly. It is also during this calendar ripping shot that we get our only look at Mermaid Man and Barnacle Boy in the movie. I'm glad they at least showed up for one for one shot of this film. So so it's good to at least see them. And today is March 7th, the day that the Krusty Krab 2 opens and SpongeBob 
assumes that he is a shoe-in for the role as manager due to his 374 consecutive Employee of the Month awards, which I did all the math for you so you don't have to, equals 31 years of service at the Krusty Krab, which is a, uh, it's a long period of time. It's a long period of time to work at a, at a restaurant, 31 years, and he has one Employee of the Month every single month for 374 of those. That's just incredible. Now, I wonder if uh, if that means that by the end of Employee of the Month, Mr. Krabs just awards SpongeBob the Employee of the Month and not Squidward. And Squidward has just never won it in his tenure. And SpongeBob has just been winning it consistently since he got hired at the Krusty Krab. I think that's what they're trying to tell us. And after his morning routine is done, when SpongeBob runs out of his house, it is legitimately my favorite scene from this movie. I'm not talking about Squidward in the shower. I'm just talking about the moment we see Conch Street for the first time and we see our three homes for the first time on the big screen. And and even if it's not the big screen, when you watch this in high definition and you see the detail in each of the houses on Patrick's rock, all of the brush strokes on Squidward's Easter Island head, you can see the lighting of the sun now cascading through the waves. It's the best we have ever seen this location, and I I love pausing the movie and just looking at it. It is easily one of my favorite just moments, artistic moments of the movie. Uh, but right after this, we get the whole managerial announcement of Squidward taking over the Krusty Krab 2 as its new manager. SpongeBob makes a complete of himself and just completely ignores the fact that Squidward was announced as manager, runs up on stage to accept the position, and ends up walking away saying words I never would have thought to come out of a character like Spongebob. He went from saying I'm ready promotion to I'm ready depression. And it's one of those moments in my life that just hit where a cartoon character admitted to being depressed, having depression. I can't think before that another character like Spongebob that was able to admit something like that. And to this day, that little scene where Spongebob walks away from the stage, it it still hits. Everything from the music to the look of the landscape as Spongebob is just walking away. We know how hurt he is at this admission of, of Mr. Krabs not thinking he's mature enough to take on the role of manager and that there's this perception from even the citizens of Bikini Bottom that he is just a goofball, a wingnut. And although we have seen SpongeBob sad in the show before, this this little moment hits different. I, I think it hurts SpongeBob at his at his absolute core, this this moment. And just like the classic logo for the arts or the theater, the two masks, the comedy and tragedy masks, we go from one of the saddest moments in SpongeBob history to one of the funniest moments. Patrick Starr had a plan to surprise SpongeBob during his announcement. He had assumed with SpongeBob that he was going to get the manager position as well. So Patrick knew, I'm going to surprise him with something cool. He comes flying in over the crowd who have all came together to watch this, this managerial announcement. And he flies over on a parachute completely naked with a flag in betwixt his butt cheeks that says SpongeBob. And he flies in as a big surprise for SpongeBob, crashes into the set, causes a fire as the crowd just evacuates out of the scene. Now, here's something interesting about this crowd. 
and that they apparently paid to be a part of this event. We don't hear from many of the fish in the crowd, but we hear from Mrs. Puff that that she apparently paid $9 to be a part of this. I don't know what they were promised other than maybe being on the news, but Mrs. Puff paid $9 to get into this event, and we also find out that Sandy was charged 10 which means there must be some sort of mammal tax going on. I think you can sue for that. But here's the thing. I scoured over all of the crowd shots to see how big of a crowd Mr. Krabs was able to get and just to roughly see how much money he made from this event. Now, there are a few shots of the crowd from similar locations that use different fish in the background and the foreground ones stay the same. And there's also the shot of Patrick flying over this group of fish that repeats itself after every like eight fish or so. Now, I counted all of those bodies because even if it's a looping amount of fish, those are still bodies that Patrick is flying over. So even if every individual fish couldn't be drawn, I'm still counting those. And as far as those other shots with the different characters in the background, some of them you can actually see from other frames, you know, possibilities of characters that have maybe been moved up. So due to coloring or if some characters are wearing a hat of some sort, I didn't count those characters twice. They're the same characters in the same shot, just just moved over. But there's certainly a lot of new fish in some of those shots. And then you also have the shots with Pearl. You have the shots with Squidward and SpongeBob. Altogether, there are 180 fish in the crowd shots. And Patrick flies over 94 fish. I took that entire scene bit by bit to make sure I counted each and every fish, even the ones that were hidden behind one another. Um, and if we take that amount, so we have 180 in the crowd, and let's times that by nine. That's already, so that's 1620, 1620. Um, but let's t let's get everybody together. 180 plus 94, that's 274 fish times the $9, $2,466. But we got to add a dollar for Sandy. She got taxed. And you know what? We also saw Squidward and SpongeBob also sitting in the crowd. And I wouldn't be surprised, especially on the fact that they were in the front row, that Mr. Krabs may have not charged them for tickets, but docked their pay for tickets for this event. So let's add on an extra $18 for that with a grand total of roughly $2,485 that Mr. Krabs has made for this little like five minute event. As far as I know, it was just Mr. Krabs talking to Perch Perkins on the news and then going right to the stage announcement, which he cuts right to the chase and announces Squidward as the new manager. Now that amount is just a rough estimate, but I guarantee you, given the amount of heads that we see, the crowd shot that Patrick flies over, the amount of fish that are there, it's not that hard to believe that Mr. Krabs made at least $2,000 on this event, which is pretty incredible that he's able to just make $2,000 out of the gate, right off the bat, just, just for the announcement of the manager. I don't know why all of the fish felt the need to go, especially if you have to pay, but but they're fish. I don't know. Maybe that's Maybe that's also the joke here. And Sandy and Mrs. Puff only showed up to support SpongeBob, which would make the most sense as to why even Sandy would want to pay $10 to know who the new manager of the Krusty Krab 2 is because she wants to support SpongeBob. Uh, right after this, of course, SpongeBob goes off to Goofy Goober's ice cream party boat, which was originally the planned party destination 
for Patrick and him for their celebration of his new promotion, kudos to him for still going. I know a lot of people who, if there was a plan like that and they didn't get the promotion, would have quit that plan right afterwards. They would have said, no, I'm not going tonight. I'm not celebrating. I'm staying home. And I got to give it to SpongeBob to to still go to the restaurant to really try and put on a good, happy face, to still have a good night with his friend. He ends up doing so, which, by the way, I got to know the recipe of that Goofy Goober ice cream. What are they putting in that stuff? Two shots of vodka. But while we're in Goofy Goobers, I want you to pay attention to the paintings on the back of the nut bar because you will notice some Popeye the Sailor drawings taken directly from some of the old comics that featured Popeye, and it was back when he wasn't even the main character. There there was a time when Popeye was just a bit character. I think it was called Thimble Theater. I think that was the comic uh, line, and he was just one character and a many bunch of characters that could appear in that comic, and eventually Popeye just became such a popular icon on his own that he transcended any of the comics that he was featured in, and to the point that most people don't even know what those comics are called or any of those other original characters. They just simply know about Popeye. But what's interesting is that Jules Engel was a background artist for the 1960 Popeye cartoon for 64 episodes of Popeye the Sailor. Uh, Now, Jules Engel, for those that don't know, was the founder of the Experimental Animation Program at the California Institute of the Arts back in 1970, where he taught for over 30 years, and until the day he passed away, remained a mentor to generations of animators, some of which went on to create some incredible works, John Lasseter, Tim Burton, Henry Selleck, some of these big names who have gone on to create some incredible pieces of art and entertainment, and one of those names also happens to be Steven Hillenburg, as well as Mark Osborne, who directed all of the live-action sequences for the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. This is what Steven Hillenburg had to say about Jules Engel. Not only was Jules Engel a seminal figure in the history of animation, he also had a profound influence on countless generations of animators. He truly was the most influential artistic person in my life. I consider him my art dad. The work he produced both professionally and personally was groundbreaking and is still cracking it as I write. Jules always promoted the notion that animation could be a means of personal expression. Jules Engel's films are true examples of the unlimited possibility that the art form of animation offers. Steven Hillenburg. Jules Engel unfortunately passed away during the production of this movie in 2003, and I I hate to assume... But I have to imagine that having someone that influential in your life, someone you considered your art dad, pass away at a time when you are right smack dab in the middle of making the, the biggest artistic creation of your life. I, I only can imagine that that was the case. And for those who also worked under Mr. Engel and then then working on the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, it all must have affected a great deal of them at that time. And to be fair, from the sound of it, without Mr. Engel, without Jules Engel's dedication to teaching the art form of animation, we may not get SpongeBob SquarePants, which means we don't get the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, which means Captain Eric 
doesn't really uh, have much to talk about at this moment in time. I probably would be making a podcast about something else, but uh, we as fans owe a lot to Jules. And, and with that, I implore you to look up some of what this man has had to say through interviews on YouTube. I had a, a wonderful time doing some research on him. I had a tough time watching him because his his style of speech and his demeanor and the way he spoke and his accent, it reminded me too much of my late grandfather. There was, there was too much crossover. I was like, this is eerie. I, I can't watch this. Uh, but I would look up some of the work that he had helped produce. He was behind also some of the parts of Fantasia, some of the choreography that went into Fantasia. He helped with some of the work on Bambi for Disney. His reach in animation goes far. And even to what he was teaching at Cal Arts. And think about some of those names I mentioned. I know might not be the, the most liked, but John Lasseter would go on to create some incredible pieces of animation with Pixar. Tim Burton. I don't think I really need to tell you some, uh, some of the works he's gone on to create. But Henry Selleck might not sound familiar, but Henry Selleck is the director of some of the greatest stop-motion animated films of all time. Yes, A Nightmare Before Christmas and even Coraline. So these guys all had some influence from Jules Engel in some way that they would take and go on to create some extraordinary pieces of work, including Steven Hillenburg. Now, during the time at the Nut Bar, SpongeBob and Patrick seemingly become intoxicated by whatever is in those Gooberberry sunrises. Uh, him and Patrick end up spending the night on the floor of Goofy Goobers and have to be swept up by the waiters and woken up in this in this hungover state in one of the funniest moments of the movie. I would say in the top three funniest moments, Hungover Spongebob is, is one of the top ones up there. And it's honestly a part of my point in how they are able to perfectly handle this character who can act like a child and have toys in his room, but then go out and basically get drunk and hungover from whatever is in that ice cream. I don't know what's going on. But one thing I do know going on at the Krusty Krab is that they have a great homage to uh, the old 1966 Batman TV series with the entrance to their uh, to where they hold the paddy wagon. The dual fire poles was the preferred entrance to the Batcave for Adam West and Burt Ward as they ended up in costume in the Batcave at the bottom of the poles. And you may not need a license to drive a sandwich, but you certainly need to understand how to work a manual stick shift, because I don't know if you noticed, but this isn't an automatic transmission vehicle. This is a stick shift, and SpongeBob knows how to drive it, and I don't know if he is just pulling the wool over everyone's eyes, or if it's just this idea that behind a boat he gets nervous, but behind a sandwich he's comfortable. But SpongeBob knows how to drive. He drives a lot in this movie, and we kind of ignore it because it's a cartoon, it's a, just let it happen, who cares? And it's really funny for him to have that line, especially when Patrick calls him out, of like, hey, I didn't think you knew how to drive. SpongeBob, you don't need a license to drive a sandwich. I don't know if that would work in our world. I don't know if I could drive out on the road in a vehicle that's made out of a sandwich and make that claim that I don't need to have my license out here because you don't need a license to drive a sandwich. I should make a video on that. I should build a paddy wagon and try driving it out in the road. I should purposely get myself in legal trouble just for a SpongeBob joke because then the end joke would be I get arrested 
because apparently you do need a license to drive a sandwich. Now, the frogfish encounter is one of the most iconic moments in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, and the frogfish itself is a monster that would make even the Alaskan bullworm turn to hide in, in fear of this creature. The teeth on this thing, its tendency to use a free ice cream booth to capture its prey, and of course, its living space in a literal graveyard of skulls, mountains of skulls surrounding where this frogfish decides to lay its home. The frogfish is a master of camouflage that will wait an exorbitant amount of time for any kind of prey to dare swim past its mouth. Its mouth is made of nightmares and can open up to 12 times the size of their face and can slurp down a meal in the blink of an eye. There was this one video I watched of this frogfish when I was looking him up where it got next to this grouping of coral and it, and it got its body to look like the rock texture of the coral, so it blended in like a rock, and, you know, some other bits and pieces got on top of it to help make it blend in so much that a, a school of fish just slowly swam by this thing. And you can see it slightly moving, like, waiting to open up its mouth, but it just, it waited for the right moment, and boom! Its mouth came out like an accordion, almost, and just swallowed one of these fish, and it's an incredible sight to behold. As far as the legs... On the frogfish, I have seen some videos of frogfish that are able to use their fins on the bottom of their bodies as legs and basically traverse the floor. So that is pretty accurate to the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. As far as any of them using a dangling old lady out of their mouth and uh, a Mr. Whiskers, I didn't unfortunately find any uh, footage of a frogfish doing any of that. But I'm sure with the depths of the ocean that we have yet to discover... There could be a fish out there made of such nightmares. I'm sure something out there exists. But one thing that I do know exists is the usage of recumbent bikes. And if you are not familiar with that name, I'm talking about the style of bike that Squidward uses in this film, which is a direct inspiration by his voice actor, Roger Bumpus, who is a, a user of the recumbent bike, which, by the way, I looked up one video to get some information on recumbent bikes, and out of the lists of pros that the gentleman used in this video, he's not associated with SpongeBob or anything, but out of his list of pros, he goes, you know, it's like laying back on a on a lawn chair, and I paused the video, and I said immediately, that is a Squidward-level bike. That fits perfectly. And riding in a recumbent bike is apparently incredibly comfortable, on your back especially, uh, but going uphill seems to be the biggest negative of those things because you're you're basically pedaling from the weight that's pushing on the back of the bike instead of where you're on a regular stand-up bike and you have your body weight on top of the pedals that you can use to go uphill. There, there's a different level of force going on there and, and the recumbent bike certainly not one you would want to take uphill, but it seems like a comfortable experience nonetheless. Now, after the frogfish escape, the frogfish ends up eating the paddy wagon and is then immediately consumed by an even larger predator, a giant eel that comes from the depths of this undersea trench, which, by the way, the, the deep, deep, undiscovered undersea world probably freaks me out the most. There's there's spots on, on Earth of land that man has never found yet. There's islands out there we probably have never even set foot on, but also there are levels of the ocean that we have yet to explore because we just don't have the technology able to withstand some of the pressures down there. And just to think that there are 
literal monsters of some sort that we just haven't even seen yet in those depths. It freaks me out. But there's this giant trench in between the road that they jumped out of the paddy wagon on and the road to Shell City on the other side. So Mindy comes in and says, I know you think kids can't do this, but I can turn you into men. Here's my mermaid magic. And ends up taking some pieces of seaweed and fastening some big old mustaches on SpongeBob and Patrick, giving them the confidence to get through this monster-infested trench. Which, by the way, as they go through in the classic Now That We're Men song, it is a legitimate dangerous experience down there. There are dangerous monsters that SpongeBob and Patrick were just lucky enough to get by with their wits, but also their charisma ends up turning some of the monsters into their friends, and they're able to just kind of waltz right out of this trench, although they end up uh, offending those monsters. In the long run, this, this should teach you to really just exude confidence and be yourself. And sometimes those moments in life that present themselves as monsters, you can overcome them. I don't know, that's a nice sentiment. But on the other side of the trench, once they are away from any of the monsters that exist in the deep, dark depths of the ocean, we are face-to-face with Dennis. Dennis, up to this point, has had a bit of a B-plot in the background, being hired by Plankton as a part of Plan Z to go after SpongeBob and Patrick. I guess Plankton knew all of the possibilities that could have happened. Like, I'm sure he was pretty okay with Krabs dying uh, in the beginning. Like, if SpongeBob didn't step in and help out Mr. Krabs in that moment, and Mr. Krabs met his demise at the hands of King Neptune, I'm sure that would have worked in Plan Z's favor. But he had the backup that in case SpongeBob stepped up to the plate, he had Dennis. And Dennis, for, for everything he goes through in this movie, is like the evil John Wick of the ocean. There's no stopping this guy, especially with what happens at the end there. Dennis is brought to life by the one and only Alec Baldwin, who is the oldest of the famous Baldwin brothers, a well-renowned family of actors. There's Alec, there's Daniel, there's William, and there's Stephen. Collectively, when they unite their powers together, they become Baldwin! But separately, they're fine on their own too. Uh, Alec, of course, in in recent news, has had a lot of controversy surrounding him, but for his actual acting career, he's one of the most versatile actors in history. Being able to handle both super dramatic roles like those in The Hunt for Red October and The Departed, but also being able to handle comedic roles like Beetlejuice or The Cat in the Hat. If you know, you know. I'm so excited! <laughs> but some of his best vocal work is done here in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. He brings a new level of gravel to his voice that helps really bring a serious level to Dennis that even up to this point in the series, we have had antagonists before, and yet none of them hit the same levels of antagonism as Dennis. In, in the voice, in the look, in the danger department, I don't think we have ever had a more dangerous creature after these characters. Seemingly, he will go after anyone for the right price, and I'm I'm sure Plankton paid him whatever he uh, he needs to go after SpongeBob and Patrick to this degree. And unfortunately, before he's able to truly do some harm to SpongeBob and Patrick, he is stepped on by the Cyclops. This is the introduction of the Cyclops before we we make our way onto Shell City. Now Dennis holds on to the bottom of that boot. And, and just remains squished. And somehow, 
I'm guessing during the struggle of all the sea creatures uh, uh, ganging up on top of the Cyclops, Dennis was probably able to wiggle that boot off of the Cyclops and, and then able to just continually go after the pair in the water and at the same speeds as David Hasselhoff, our, our true guest star of this movie, because not only does he help bring his voice to the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, but he brings himself to the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Uh, it's it's one of the most iconic moments in cinema history. I'm not saying it's anywhere near the top 10 or top 25, but wherever it lands on this list, if there's this one moment that can stand for the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, it's SpongeBob and Patrick meeting David Hasselhoff. It's it's just such a cool moment. And for those that don't know who the Hoff is, well then sit down and and let me educate you. Uh, David Hasselhoff is an actor, a singer, and best known for his roles as Michael Knight on the 1982 Knight Rider, and not only had one super successful TV show under his belt, but then went on to star in Baywatch as Mitch Buchanan from 1989 until the year 2000, more than a decade as a lifeguard on television, which should answer your question as to why it's David Hasselhoff. If there's any lifeguard to show up to save the day, it's either going to be David Hasselhoff or Pamela Anderson. And although that ending would certainly be interesting, um, I'm I'm glad the Hoff stepped up. I'm so glad he took on this role, and it's it's one of my favorite moments of the movie, anything involving David Hasselhoff. Uh, David Hasselhoff shows up and apparently not only has the ability to swim uh, at high speeds, but he is then able to use his body almost like a motorboat. You old sailor, you. And even creepier than that, David Hasselhoff has an internal GPS of some sorts, knowing exactly where all of the undersea towns are and cities. When SpongeBob and Patrick mention that they have to get back to Bikini Bottom, uh, David Hasselhoff knows that he has to get to Bikini Atoll, and he does get there. Now, there is a battle with Dennis coming back and and fighting SpongeBob and Patrick all on the back and legs of David Hasselhoff, also on his hindquarters as well. And to achieve this effect, the crew for the SpongeBob SquarePants movie built a 750-pound, 12-foot replica of David Hasselhoff in the ocean. And they placed the statue inside of a controlled pool so that the camera crew could get up-close shots of Hasselhoff's legs and his back so that the animators could add on SpongeBob, Patrick, and Dennis onto the action, and they would have more control over the angles, and it would be easier on the post-production end to do this. Now, where this statue lies is still in David Hasselhoff's home. The man did put it up for auction in 2014, but unfortunately was only able to bring in about $30,000, and Hasselhoff pulled the item before it could ultimately uh, go to an auction. Now, this whole piece was built for about $100,000, so I'm sure maybe David's thinking just by the pieces alone, it's worth a bit more than $30,000. And honestly, for what it means for the SpongeBob world, it, it's worth a lot more than $100,000. There should be a Nickelodeon museum that has that David Hasselhoff piece, that has the restored Good Burger car in the front, or we keep that parked inside to keep it pristine. And and of course, this place doesn't exist yet, but uh, 
hey, if it ever happens, I would love to help curate this museum. But on to the finale of the movie, we get to the Goofy Goober Rock segment, which, of course, that song being one of the greatest SpongeBob SquarePants songs in history, a song that you couldn't escape during the promotion of the SpongeBob movie. They knew they had a hit on their hands. When they were promoting even just the movie game, they would just use Goofy Goober Rock in all of the commercials, which I don't blame them. It's an absolute banger and, you know, etched itself in history. It's actually a play on the song I Want to Rock by Twisted Sister. And all it takes is is a couple of seconds of that song for you to hear the similarities between the two. And it's a, it's a great song in its own right. But I want you to pay attention to two fish during that song that are caught headbanging under Plankton where he he's in the hole in the wall and he's still hanging out uh, looking at everything going on and SpongeBob has already started knocking off some of the helmets. But there are two fish headbanging. And if you pay attention to them, you may notice some similarities between those two fish and two other characters that happen to be owned by the sister company of Nickelodeon. I'm talking about those two fart knockers, Beavis and Butthead. (laughs) I'm a massive fan of Beavis and Butthead, and you cannot convince me that these two are not just a bit of a homage to the characters. One of them is blonde with a blue shirt, and the other one has dark hair with red shorts. That alone is the style of Beavis and Butthead, and here they are headbanging to Goofy Goober Rock, which I got to imagine the real Beavis and Butthead would agree is still a bangin' song, just like the original. And speaking of the soundtrack itself, it's one of the few CDs that I owned at the time. I actually saved up some of that money I had on my paper out and bought the SpongeBob SquarePants movie CD, which featured not only songs in the movie, but had a ton of other SpongeBob-inspired songs, including Best Day Ever, which was actually recorded before the movie. And at the time of the movie's production, when they were filling out the soundtrack, they had two more spots they needed to fill and went and found two SpongeBob songs that they thought would fit the soundtrack, Best Day Ever and Under My Rock, which were two songs that they were working on for a future CD project known as The Best Day Ever. So those songs were then brought over to the SpongeBob SquarePants movie soundtrack. And I I can't say enough good things about this soundtrack. If you haven't ever actually listened to the music on the CD and you just only know the songs from the movie itself, I would implore you to take some time out of your day and actually look up some of the other tracks that were on that that soundtrack. You might find an extra track or two that you're going to add to your gym playlist going forward. The years preceding the movie for Spongebob were incredibly important in establishing the character's place in pop culture. Merchandise started to flood stores, and you couldn't escape the theme song being recited at thousands of sporting events across the world. And while Spongebob was soaking up all of this attention, he immediately had mine as well. And I indulged right into the Spongebob merchandise to show off what I enjoyed everywhere I went. And I'm a big t-shirt guy. Ever since I was a kid, I loved having t-shirts of various characters and movies that I enjoyed. I loved showing them off at school. And when I first showed up in the sixth grade with a SpongeBob t-shirt, I might have been one of the first kids. It was an immediate hit. Everybody loved that shirt. And then when I went on to the seventh grade, to middle school, it was a complete culture shock for my world. I'm sure it might work differently wherever you are in the world, but in my town... There is about 
seven or eight different elementary schools, or at least at the time there were, and there was only one middle school. So for your two years of middle school, all of these kids were combining into this one location. So I went from my elementary school, which I got to be in for a few years. I got to know the staff there. And you're basically with the same group of kids throughout that entire experience. And when you're thrust into middle school, you can forget most of your friends that you made. Sure, they're still around in some places, but you are all scattered, all jumbled around. And it's a whole new experience as far as a school goes. You go from one classroom that you move around maybe to another one or two throughout the day to constantly moving from classroom to classroom with a full schedule, a locker, more books to keep track of. And I took a massive faceplant into middle school, not literally, but figuratively. I took a massive faceplant going into middle school. It didn't help that all of the sudden, the three months in between elementary school and middle school, everybody decided to ditch Nickelodeon and started watching whatever they deemed more mature, and all of a sudden, I was being bullied for wearing Spongebob shirts. I was being bullied for wearing any sort of cartoon shirts. I was even being bullied for wearing a jackass t-shirt. I had a white t-shirt that had a picture of Johnny Knoxville on it that said Knoxville, and I was made fun of because Johnny Knoxville happened to be shirtless on this picture, and therefore, I was gay for wearing a t-shirt that had a shirtless man on it. Middle school kids are savage. Now, at this point in my life, I couldn't give a Frenchman's over what anyone has to say on what I'm wearing, but uh, I can tell you that at the time, it was really weird to just go from a very accepting environment to just a total nightmare. And beyond my social life, my academic career in middle school took a bit of a nosedive. Now, at the time, I didn't realize that for me to be successful in a class, a part of it, of course, definitely is on me having to push myself to just do the work and just focus. But a part of it does have to come from the instructor and their enthusiasm for what they're teaching. If you're skating by and you're just reading from a book and there's no enthusiasm and there's no charisma, you're going to lose me. I'm going to doodle in my notebook or I'm going to be on my phone. And unfortunately, two of the teachers that I had in middle school kind of fit that bill. I didn't really have a good rapport with them, and that just kind of compiled on top of negative experiences, and I found myself with two Fs. One of them I fully earned. Now, to be fair, I don't remember many experiences in this geography class, but I'll tell you about one, which was completely unfair on my part, but I think every week there was a project in which the teacher would send a student home to read the newspaper or they would watch the news and they would have to write about a story that they were, you know, focusing on and they would come into the class the next day and present whatever they saw or read about. Now, I wasn't really a newspaper reader. I delivered the newspapers, but I wasn't really reading them. And the only news coverage I ever really got at that time was from The Daily Show with Jon Stewart on Comedy Central which if you're ignorant about, it may seem like, well, that just sounds like it's going to be a comedy show, but it is still in fact real news being covered with a comedic edge. And I watched The Daily Show that evening, as I usually did, and I excitedly wrote about whatever was going on in the Middle East or what was happening domestically. I wrote a big story, and I went in the next day, and I spoke to the class about this, 
The teacher was impressed. There was a big discussion as to what was going on. I was engaged. The class was engaged. And at the end, when the teacher asked me where I got my sources, what did I read, what did I watch, and I said The Daily Show, I will never forget the look on this woman's face. It went from like slightly, you know, impressed. There was a nice smile on her face to immediate disgust. And she failed me for that project because I watched The Daily Show. Now, that's the only experience I can remember in that class vividly and that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. But I imagine I just did not really gel well with this teacher throughout that year. And as far as the other teacher is concerned, my English teacher, him and I really didn't get along. And and it was even worse than the geography teacher. I definitely didn't pay attention in his class. He was a very monotone by the book, didn't really put any enthusiasm into his English teaching, and, and he completely lost me throughout the year. And at the end of the year, he had informed me that I had received a D of some sort, but it was so close to an F, and he knew that I was failing geography, that he pushed me into the F category on purpose. And honestly, it's it's this encounter that when I was recording yesterday, I've talked about this my entire life. I've talked about how this was the moment that I had to stay back, and this guy almost forced me to stay back, but the silver lining was that staying back in seventh grade was one of the greatest things to ever happen to me. So if anything, I should thank this guy. But it was yesterday while I was recording that it really hit me as a as a really traumatic experience, like a teacher pulling in a seventh grade student who's been struggling the entire year and then telling him that he's he's earned the grade technically to pass and move on, but due to his ability to, I guess, sway the grade a point or two is pushing me out of the pen. I don't know. Yesterday it hit me in a different way, and I'm fine with it today in the same way I have been for the last 15 or so years since it happened. Uh, but yeah. Really, really terrible experience to have gone through. But once again, it was a great thing to happen to me. I'm I'm over the moon that I stayed back. I ended up having a wonderful time through the rest of my middle school experience. And this is actually where the connection to the SpongeBob SquarePants movie comes into play. Now, I didn't have to stay back. There was an option for summer school, but my mother decided against it. She just thought, hey, you're going to go through another year. It is what it is. And I had to accept that pretty quickly. But a part of staying back is that you are also helped out with this program called ALC, the Alternative Learning Center, which was a massive help in which it gave any student who stayed back an extra study hall, which also gave you extra access to teachers who were there to help you in any way you needed. So even if you didn't need the extra help, you were still good to go, but hey, the safety net is there. And also that extra study hall was wonderful. And I had a great time through this program. It was a wonderful experience. And the teachers that were a part of that program, I am still in contact with to this day. They are wonderful human beings, wonderful teachers, and doing incredible things out there in the world. But this is where SpongeBob comes in because a part of this program was they had their own good noodle board of sorts, even though it wasn't called the good noodle board and we didn't use stars, but if you remember the good noodle board from New Student Starfish, just think of that concept. And it was a board to keep track of everybody's uh, achievements, both academically and behaviorally. 
And at the end of every two weeks, I believe, if you met the threshold of the amount of points that you earned or or you didn't lose, you were able to do whatever activity we had decided on. And it could be just bringing in a video game system, being able to watch a movie, doing something extra like an ice cream party. It was an extra incentive to do well. And one of the items that they always teased us about as a possibility was going out as a field trip somewhere in the state and doing something. And I pleaded for weeks for us to go and see the SpongeBob SquarePants movie the day it came out, the first showing in town. And after weeks of pleading for this to happen, I got the green light. And we were going to see the SpongeBob SquarePants movie in theaters, the first showing on the first day. I couldn't be more excited. And then I blew it. I absolutely blew it at the zero hour, and for some reason, on the day of, I messed up in some way. I don't necessarily remember what I did, but I certainly was not thinking straight at the time, and I and I cost myself something that I helped build and create. This moment of getting to leave the school to go see a movie was now gone, and I was upset about that. I thought it was unfair, and I, I cried. Which, I don't know, I'm not really embarrassed about that now. What am I supposed to do when you're 14 and this is something you've built up for, months for? And even though I knew later on in the night the silver lining of going with my father was was a real possibility, and I'm glad I did get to go with my dad because he loved Spongebob. My mom was there to watch Rugrats with me and my dad was there to watch Spongebob. And although it wasn't his favorite cartoon, that would be Courage the Cowardly Dog. It was one of three cartoons that I could get my dad to actually sit down and watch. It was Spongebob, it was Courage, and it was Beavis and Butthead. So honestly, if anything else, when I think about that that opening tune of, of the Nickelodeon movie's indent, I, I think of my dad. I think of being there in the theater and, and sitting with my dad and even though we had seen movies after the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, it's it's probably one of my favorites, if not my favorite movie that I got to watch with my dad. And it's one of those moments I will cherish for the rest of my life. It was really only during those middle school years that SpongeBob was somehow deemed uncool. And it's really ironic that it was during that time some of the greatest and most quoted episodes of SpongeBob were airing. I, I think about this... That all of those kids who were making fun of me for watching Spongebob, even though they were probably going home and still watching it, but they were missing out on all of the episodes that are now being memed or all of those quotes that are now being said. And I just laugh about that. It's funny. And it's also funny that there are at least two of the people who had really made fun of me for the Spongebob thing, specifically in middle school, who years later would go on to ask me to draw the character for them in high school. And I gladly did. I can be bitter here and there, but I don't know. When it comes to anything like SpongeBob, I'm not going to wield that in a in a bitter way. It would honestly go against everything that I feel like I've learned from SpongeBob and that I associate with him, like being positive, being optimistic. The SpongeBob SquarePants movie is a story about being true to yourself and not letting anyone's opinions of you dictate how your story is told. We all agree that you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, yet we all do it to some degree, within ourselves. 
We place people into these little holes and assume the best and worst of them based off of just very minor details over how they're presented or how they dress or even just minor ways on how they act. We see it happen all the time and we just make the worst assumptions of people when we really shouldn't. Everyone listening to this right now has abilities beyond their current knowledge and there are people out there that have no idea what you're capable of. Everyone assumed they knew what SpongeBob was capable of and yet... He did the impossible. He was able to achieve something that every single adult laughed at him for doing. And at the end of the day, he achieved that. And you may think it's just a one-off or it's just some sort of miracle, but everybody out there is capable of more. And don't let anybody dictate that. That's what I've learned from the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. And at its core, I think there is all something that we can identify with in this movie being passed up for a promotion. I mean, that's happened once or twice in my life. Dealing with depression, something, hey, I've had to deal with. Knowing that you're able to do something, but not having the backing of others to do so, not being able to to state your case, I've been in that situation. And just for the record, depression is no joke, and it can come in a wide variety of shapes and sizes. And I've said before in this podcast, if you're out there listening to this, you are not alone. You're not alone in your battle. You are not alone. We're out there fighting this together. Keep your head up, stay true to yourself, and don't let anyone else write the story you're trying to tell. A lot of the heart that exudes in this movie is what has kept my attention all these years, and I think I found a way to explain why I prefer the SpongeBob SquarePants movie over some of these other animated features, and it all comes down to a car show that I found myself watching. It was a recent car show, it was a video of a car show just going over some of the cars that were featured. And among these cars, there was a 1964 Maserati 151 that raced in the Le Mans and had never been restored. It had raced in the Le Mans and then from that day on just just kept it as is. And here's this beat up, dented, dinged up car among all of these other muscle cars some of which I absolutely adore and have been kept in pristine condition, but my attention kept coming back to this this one car, and it was due to the heart. I was able to feel the heart of that car. It told a story, and you can feel it, even through watching a video, just the, the heart that this car had. And if you took all of the animated films in the world and put them in a, in a big warehouse as a big car show, The SpongeBob SquarePants movie wouldn't be the flashiest or impressively built car in the room, but would have an unignorable level of optimism and heart that is truly one of a kind. There is no other movie like it, and there's a reason why to this day there are moments of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie that are just as talked about and popular as they were almost 20 years ago. I hope for the 20th anniversary of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie, they re-release it in theaters. I was able to see it at a drive-in during the pandemic in 2020. Uh, There was a drive-in that would would remain open to play movies, and of course, you're staying in your car. So I've technically seen the SpongeBob movie twice on the big screen, but I would love to be in a packed theater again experiencing that movie as an adult and just to experience the love and heart all over again. 
And I have to imagine if you've made it this far in the podcast, then you're some sort of fan of the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. So if you're watching the video version of this, please sound off in the comments below and let me know what some of your favorite moments of the movie are. Do you have a, a specific frame that you like? As I had mentioned before, loving that first shot of Conch Street, do you have another moment from the movie that just sticks with you? Do you have a story associated with seeing the SpongeBob SquarePants movie? Or do you have a story of getting it on video, on DVD, Blu-ray? What was it like the first time you saw this movie? Was it on TV? Did you get to see it in theaters? Did you see it in a drive-in? Please let me know any of your SpongeBob SquarePants movie stories below. I would love to engage with you guys. And with that, that's our time together aboard. Thank you for being a part of the Ready Crew. You can reach Captain Eric at spongepodpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at I'm Ready Podcast and on Instagram at SpongeBob Podcast. Please check out my other podcast, This Week in Nickelodeon History, dropping every Sunday on most conceivable podcasting platforms. And don't forget to subscribe to the Captain Eric YouTube channel, where you can also hit that bell for notifications whenever the captain puts something out. You can also purchase new and updated merch at the Redbubble link either in my podcast description or in the link from any of my socials. Anything that comes in through my projects, go directly back into my projects, and it's always appreciated. Now, at the end of every podcast, I always say for you guys to be safe and be kind to one another, but on today's episode, I'm going to end with a quote from Steven Hillenberg. If you have an idea, follow it, and don't deviate, because then you're not going to know what you have. Steven Hillenberg.